So welcome, everybody. Thank you for your patience as we gather our prana into the space and uh, come together for a few minutes of thinking about the Dharma, contemplating the teachings of Buddhism. Um, this, uh, as many of you know, this is the Dharma Buffet, the uh, Thursday night here at the uh, Sky Creek Dharma Center. We have a, we cycle through different uh, approaches and uh, aspects and, and styles of Buddhism. Um, my name is Mojo. I'm here on the second Thursday of the month. And I am representing uh, Tibetan Buddhism, specifically the Geluk school of Tibetan Buddhism, which is the lineage of the Dalai Lamas. The founder of the, of, uh, the Geluk school is named uh, Tsongkhapa, J. Tsongkhapa. He lived from 1357 to 1419, and he was the teacher of the first Dalai Lama. Uh, We're now on the 14th Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso. So um, that's, the, that's sort of the particular stream that we're in. There's a lot of different flavors and styles of Buddhism. Sometimes they're called different schools of Buddhism, but I think it's more helpful to think of, them, think of them as different stylistic approaches as opposed to different philosophical approaches. They just choose different things to look at, different aspects to emphasize. Some systems emphasize meditation, some systems emphasize compassion, some systems emphasize uh, working with the deities like you see here in the, uh, the illustrations uh, surrounding us, the tankas, um, various depictions of uh, enlightened activity, enlightened mind. Uh, we like to joke that the Geluk, the Geluk school is focused primarily on lists. We love our lists. So, list Buddhism, and uh, we have here uh, a handout. Uh, there's an outline for the class that I'm going to follow, and um, then the rest of the packet is uh, further reading, which uh, we won't go into detail, but it's for your own, um, your own self, your own self study. Um, Buddhism doesn't work based on belief or faith. It's a, a scientific method that you have to put into practice in the scientific laboratory of your own mind, your own consciousness, your own mind stream. So um, while it's beneficial to um, Hear about, the Buddha, uh, hear about Buddhism and hear about these ideas, the, the real power comes from cooking it in your own mind and working on it yourself. Um, and gradually it permeates your mind and becomes uh, the, the overarching theme of your life and, and it can become the motivation that drives all of your actions. So we, um, in these classes, I am reviewing the, what are called the three principal paths of Buddhism, renunciation, bodhicitta, and wisdom. We've covered renunciation and bodhicitta in previous classes. There are rec audio recordings of those online, and uh, you can find them if you're interested. Just let me know. We can, uh, we can tell you where to find them. I'll just mention it now. It's mindbodyinline.com and there's a podcast so you can subscribe on your iPhone or whatever you have so that you can download the, the audio recordings uh, and hear the previous classes if that's something that you're interested in. 
So in this class, we are uh, getting right to the core of the issue. Um, renunciation is the, um, is the process of recognizing that your spiritual life is important. I actually personally don't really like the word spiritual. I don't find it particularly very descriptive. I, I prefer to think of it as cosmic evolution, that we're on an evolutionary trajectory that's not limited to one lifetime. Uh, uh, one of the kind of fundamental assertions of Buddhism is that the mind is not destroyed at death, that the mind stream continues. The mind is fundamentally a non-physical thing and, uh, and cannot be affected directly through material, uh, material changes. And so we have uh, the momentum of our karma, the, the habits that we cultivate, and these um, drive our mind stream through multiple incarnations. And according to Buddhist philosophy, um, time itself is a, a perception, and that we actually have been in the process of cosmic evolution uh, from, as they put it, beginningless time. That that there is no that time has no beginning or an end, but the process of awakening to how causality is working gives us the ability to step outside of being subjected to the buffeting winds of time and causality and uh, we can get a, a bigger picture that allows us to step outside or above or, or step around the limitations of time. So beginningless time, infinite time, infinite previous births, infinite future births driven by habits of behavior. And so renunciation, the first of the three principal paths, is recognizing that this is the case, recognizing that what we think of as free will, what we think of as uh, making decisions, really is uh, an unconscious habitual process driven by uh, habits. You know, they, they like to use the metaphor of seeds. Uh, that you plant seeds and then the seeds ripen and it helps you understand that there's like a time gap and that you can't plant a Cherry seed and expect to get an apple tree, you know that the type of seeds that you plant are the type of are going to ripen in a similar way and They're going to ripen in a bigger way a little seed can turn into a massive tree But the idea of seeds I think is too Mechanistic too materialistic. It's really more like momentum it's more like we're being driven by an engine that we don't really understand. And so renunciation is realizing that I'm being buffeted by this process and realizing that I need to, that I need to uh, take control of the process, try to take control of the process, try to understand the process. And with renunciation, the recognition, the realization of renunciation, right? The realization meaning it transforms from a set of intellectual concepts into a deep felt experiential sense is when we recognize that we have to take our co cosmic evolution seriously, that there's something that we can do about it and that we decide that we're gonna start doing something about it. And that gets us onto the second of the three principal paths, which is bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is often referred to as compassion. Um, 
renunciation is recognizing that I'm stuck in suffering and, and having compassion for my own suffering schmuck self. And bodhicitta is recognizing that everybody else is in the same situation, that we're essentially all equal. Uh, and from the, from, you know, ants up to humans and whatever other, you know, high, highly evolved beings we can see and interact with, that we're all in basically in the same situation, that we're all trying to avoid pain and we're trying to seek happiness. And um, that because all beings are in this situation, it's very undemocratic to be preoccupied with my own happiness and that I need to be equally preoccupied with other people's happiness and well-being as well. And so compassion, though, really is a tool that helps us get get bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is a, a technical Buddhist term that is more, it, it, you know, bodhicitta, compassion is like a very timid version of bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is like an obsessional drive to rescue others from their pain. And even, even deeper than that, bodhicitta is a pragmatic recognition that because we understand the laws of cause and effect, we understand that the type of seeds we plant are the type of results that we will have, that really the only way that I can get myself out of suffering, the only way that I can become awakened to the nature of reality is to care as much or more about other people's suffering than I care about my own suffering. That as long as I'm preoccupied with my own suffering, so renunciation is recognizing that I'm trapped in samsara, so to speak. Bodhicitta is recognizing everybody else is trapped in samsara, and that the only way that I'm gonna get out of samsara is if I take everybody with me. I have to want their freedom more than I want my own freedom. But then the third of the three principal paths, which is what we're gonna talk about tonight, is like how do we understand how the machine is working? How do we turn the engine so that it's doing what we want the engine to do? How, how is it working? Why is it working the way that it is? So renunciation and bodhicitta are how we get motivated and focused so that we can apply our mind to wisdom metaphysics, understanding how the universe is really working so that we can hijack the process and, and, and uh, move it in the, uh, switch the inertia, switch the momentum so it's moving in the direction that we want it to be moving in, which is freedom from pain for all beings. Now, onto the outline. Two truths or realities, two versions of reality. Ultimate truth and deceptive truth. Um, it's a little bit of a mis it's a little bit misleading because it's not that reality is deceiving us. Looking at the second here, deceptive reality. It's not that reality is deceiving us. It's that we're deceiving ourselves about how the universe is working. We're through our habits through our ignorance, of course ignorance is like the main, the main problem according to Buddhism. You have, the, you have the two kind of like secondary problems which is desire, ignorant desire, ignorant aversion. Desire is thinking that something outside of me is going to make me happy. And aversion is thinking that if I could get rid of that thing that I don't want, that's going to make me happy. You know? And they're basically two versions of the same thing. Thinking that the, the, the things out there 
are, the, are either the good things or the bad things, that they're inherently, self-existently, intrinsically happiness-making or sadness-making. And, you know, this is obviously not true because if ice cream were happiness-making, then the more ice cream you ate, the happier you would be. If money was the cause of happiness, the more money, dollars would be equal, you know, one dollar would be one happiness unit, you know? And this is obviously not the case, right? And likewise, if that SOB was out of my face, if I could just get rid of all of the obnoxious people in the world, then I'd be cool, right? Actually, it is possible to get rid of all the obnoxious people in the world, but it's not by changing them. It's not by moving to a new town. It's not by breaking up with the crappy boyfriend or girlfriend. It's because I change me. I change how I perceive the universe. So this is what deceptive, this is what deceptive truth means, that I'm going to the job, I'm doing the, all of the different things that I do, I'm going to the gym because if I get the right physique then I'm gonna find the right partner and that person is gonna love me because of something that I'm showing them and that's gonna like solve the problem of me being unhappy. And so we're deceiving ourselves about how it's working. We think that, the, we think that it's out there, the way that it is. We, we're continually mistaking the characteristics that we see in, in objects and phenomena as being intrinsic to the objects and phenomena. When in fact, ultimate reality is the recognition that the characteristics that we see are imposed by our perception. Now, it seems like it would be uh, pretty easy to, uh, to change that, right? That um, if I could just see the obnoxious person as a nice person, that then, like, you could just change it in the moment. But the, the thing is that we are forced to perceive things the way that we perceive them because of our karmic momentum. The type of seeds that we've planted in the past is our ripening as the experiences that we're having and the experience of believing that those characteristics are inherent in the, the things that we're experiencing. That it's out there, so to say, self-existently, independently, uh, the way that it is, regardless of what I, am, what I am overlaying, regardless of who I am. My teacher calls these, like we're, in a, we're on like a theme park ride called Horrorland, and we have pop-ups in Horrorland. The guy cuts you off in traffic, the obnoxious person says something mean to you, and our immediate, in, our immediate reaction is to say, that person cut me off, they're in my way, they're, they're the problem. The problem is the, the fact that the person cut me off. The problem is the fact that the person is in my face right now. And the thing is that those are happening to us because of our momentum, our habits of perception. Ultimate reality is recognizing that objects and phenomena are actually completely void, completely empty of the characteristics that we assume that they have. So in, in Buddhism, they, the uh, terminology is voidness or emptiness. And, uh, and what that means is that 
they are empty of the qualities that I believe that they have. They are not, the, the characters that, the characteristics that I see in the object are, that the object is absent of those characteristics. The characteristics that I see are the result of my karmic seeds ripening in the present. Karmic seeds planted in the past, ripening in the present. But of course, time itself is an illusion, so the whole past, present, future thing is an illusion as well. Deceptive reality is assuming that the things that I experience are real, of coming from their own side. Ultimate reality is recognizing that all phenomena, all characteristics are in fact imposed. They're coming from me. I'm overlaying them onto sense data. Three views, moving on to the next uh, item on our list. As a good Gelukpa, I'm going to follow the list. Uh, the three views of interdependence and de or dependent origination. Now, uh, to be honest, we've got these terms, functionalist, independent, implication. These are technical terms that re refer to different styles or schools of Buddhism. Don't ascribe too much, don't ascribe too much to the technical terminology here. It's what, what they mean that really matters. So the so-called functionalist group asserts that things exist based on their causes and conditions. So all of these groups are true, but they're, but they're not necessarily complete. They're not necessarily a complete version of the truth. Functionalist group asserts that things exist based on causes and conditions. So what does that mean? What, what are causes and conditions? So causes and conditions are that I have a pen in my hand. It's really a pen. It exists. It's based on, which is not like, you don't have to convince you that the pen exists, do I? Uh, I have to convince you that the pen exists based on your perception of the pen. So the, the pen, the pen is... The pen came from, these are the causes and conditions of the pen, right? There's some petrochemicals that were harvested from the earth. They were refined into plastic. It went to a factory. They combined the, the different pieces of the pen to create the pen. And the pen then went on a truck and it got shipped to a store. And the, I, you know, I went to the store and I bought the pen and then I carried the pen here to the Dharma Center and I picked up the pen and I'm showing it to you now. So the causes and conditions of the pen are that um, that it it came from somewhere that that it's comprised of a that it's not an object it is a process because the pen will eventually cease to exist if the if the pen runs out of ink it ceases to be a pen it ceases to function at that point, it stops being a pen. The causes and conditions that somebody injected ink into a little cylinder and that the ink dried up or went away, the, it stops being a pen at that point. The pen is dependent upon the causes that put the pen into place. I think of it as, I think of it as a pen because I use it as a pen but what I'm not really realizing in the moment to moment that I'm interacting with the pen is that it 
is in fact a flow. It's what I perceive as an object is a flow. So the causes and conditions of my body, right? I was conceived, I was born, I, was, I grew up through time, I matured. Uh, the clothes that I'm wearing all came from factories. And I think of those things as having inherent characteristics, but in fact, they really are in a constant state of change, a constant state of transformation. And modern physics totally validates this, right? On the subatomic level, on the, on the microscopic, super microscopic level, this thing is changing moment to moment, mil, you know, microsecond to microsecond. In fact, if you look at this on, from the level of physics, there's not an object here at all. There is only a process. It's constantly changing. It's not like someday in a thousand years this is going to be plastic dust. It's that its quality is changing moment to moment. And it's only a matter of the way that I see it in the moment that makes me think it is the way that it is. So the independent group says that's all well and good, but really it's dependent upon its parts. And so it's not the, 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 okay, here's the classic, um, here's the classic uh, kind of thought experiment for this. How many objects am I holding in my hand? How many pens am I holding in my hand? One, one pen, one pen. So it's, a, it's one thing. Okay, now how many objects am I holding in my hands? Two. Two objects. So, is it one thing or is it two things? It's two. It's two things. So you, I have two pens. No, you have two parts of a pen. I have two parts of a pen. Yeah. So I have two. I have, but but is it two pens? Is 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 this the pen or is this the pen? The one that writes. Okay, so, um, the, so the pen functions without the cap. But what if I took the ink part out? Then which part is the pen? I have, like, how, how many pens are here? There's only one pen. But how can I have two things if it's one pen? Now, I know this seems obvious, right? This is the cap of the pen. This is the, the body of the pen. There's this bottom part of the pen, there's the ink part of the pen, there's the ball part of the pen that's inside this other tip of the pen, right? But the, the, the pen, the penness, the functionality of what makes it a pen is that these parts all come together as a pen. So is, it, is this one thing or is it many things? This is the question that the independent group wants, to, wants us to ask. Is it one thing or is it many things? It can't be one thing if it's many things. If it's many things, then I have many pens. If it's one thing, then there's only one pen. It can't have, I could, if, if this was one pen, I could not take it apart and have two objects in my hand. There's only, if, if it's one thing, it's one thing. If there's many things, there's many things. The pen, point of this is that the penness is coming from me. What I perceive, what I see as a pen is a conceptual overlay over a whole conglomeration of parts. So the functionalist and the independent group causes and conditions and based on its parts, these are both, these are both true, right? They're both accurate. There's not, 
There's neither one thing nor many things. It depends. It depends on the perspective. And this is what the implication group is, is getting at. That things exist based on the perception of the perceiver. That the pen, the pen in fact does not exist until and when some perceiver identifies it as a pen and uses it as a pen. So the implication group goes a little bit further. If I showed this object to a dog, would the dog see a pen? If this were a pen, dog, a dog, I could give it to a dog and the dog would write with it. If it were inherently a pen, if it were intrinsically a pen, if it was a pen out there self-existently, regardless of how I'm perceiving it, if the penness was inherent to the pen, a dog would write with it. So a dog would see it as something else. A dog would perceive this object and it would, a dog would test the object. How does, the, how does this object function to a dog or to any other being? If a dog picks this up and, uh, and uses it as a chew toy, the dog is not experiencing the pen-ness of what I see as a pen. The dog is experiencing the chew toy-ness of the chew toy. If the pen were a pen, the dog could not perceive it as a chew toy. The dog would perceive it as a pen. So, of course, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Stupid dog, it doesn't know what a pen is. So that means we're negate, but that can't work because then we're negating the dog's perspective. And if we're negating the dog's perspective, then we're negating everybody else's perspective and we're, in that, we're into that trap of thinking that things are self-existent. We're thinking that things exist the way, we're assuming that the way that I see things is the way things are. Which is what we're doing constantly, moment to moment. The way I see it is the way it is. So it's all well and good to sort of joke about dogs and pens and chew toys, but then like what about people who piss you off? Right? Is Trump inherently a bigot? Is that person who gets in your face, are they inherently a jerk? It can't be that way. It can't be that way. It's a fundamental misunderstanding about how reality is working. So, you know, in philosophy, we, um, we think about uh, like perspectivism. Perspectivism is the, is the philosophical viewpoint that the, the only world that matters is the world that is experienced. And, it's, and, and then we think, well, okay, everybody's having their own experience. And so there are multiple different perspectives. But there must be some like inherent intrinsic reality out there that we have different lenses on, right? We see things slightly differently. You know, the silly dog thinks the pen is a chew toy, but 
I know better, I know it's a pen. And if the dog was smarter, the dog would see it as a pen. But the dog's point of view is, is, is equally as valid as my own. Each being's perspective is equally valid. And this is one of those things that bodhicitta accepts, right? Bodhicitta has to say that each person's subjective experience of reality is accurate. It can't, it has to be that way. There's, it would be, it, it, it's a fallacy to, to think that, it's like a category error to think that the way that I see things is the way that they are and the way that other people see things, if it's different than my own perspective, it's wrong. We're falling into this trap continuously, continuously falling into this trap. So the implication group is, is saying that this isn't, this isn't just a thought experiment. This isn't just a fun little mental rigmarole that we're playing with. This is actually how the universe is working. The reason we see things the way that we do is because we see things the way that we do. The characteristics that we perceive in outer objects, outer phenomena, are forced upon us by our habits of perception. And that's true for each person. That's true for each being. So what, what, what is reality if every being is perceiving a different version of it? This is what is called emptiness. The lack of self-existence. The, la the, the absence of inherent characteristics to all things and phenomena. So in Buddhism, there's this concept of anatman, right? No self, non-self. Um, what I perceive as me, I am empty of the characteristics that I perceive in myself. What I who and what I think I am is created by habit. The same way that the pen exists based on its, its uh, causes and conditions, the same way that the pen exists based on its parts, so too do I function that way. The parts of my body and the parts of my mind are habits of perception. So Anatman, this is a big, you know, this is a big problem. And of course, the Buddhists and the Hindus are like the Hindus are like Atman, capital A Atman, like there's a self, a capital S self, you know. And the Buddhists are like, no, there's an absence of a self. And they're both pointing at the same thing, which is that there is something 
there is something that we are perceiving as there's something that we're perceiving as me that that isn't there you say your name to yourself me say my name to to myself is a, a collection of ideas and habits and perceptual overlays so there is a self right because I experience it if you like this is the thing with emptiness there are the two Buddhism you know is sometimes called the middle way right in the the middle way means that there are two extremes um, there's uh, like reification or materialism or physicalism or whatever you want to call it where I am believing that the things that I'm perceiving are inherent to the object things are the way that I perceive them because that's just the way it is and then there's the opposite extreme which is what we teeter on when we start playing with emptiness which is nihilism that if if things are completely absent of, of inherent characteristics, then there's nothing there at all, right? But that's silly because, of course, we're having experiences. We couldn't be having experiences if there was nothing, right? Nothing can't be a thing. You can't have... You, nothing would be like a... Would be like a... Um, a, a how, do they, how do they put it? Um, a, signified, a signifier without a signified. Is that right? A um, like um, like trying to put a label on an absence, like a label on a something that's not there. You know, like nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible because it's saying it's saying that it's saying that there that uh, that nothing is a thing. Uh, you know, that's the I, that it's it's a another category error. It just doesn't make sense. But. When we start playing with nihilism, I mean, when we start playing with emptiness, we run the risk of falling into nihilism. Because, of course, that means that, I mean, our values, our, our values, what seems to us to be important in the world is a conceptual overlay. The, the world is absent of inherent values. What I believe to be true, what I believe to be right, is a conceptual overlay. And if you remove that conceptual overlay, what's left? It's like you get the rug pulled out from you, out from under you, and you're and that's like that's where nihilism is going. That if 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 the world that I experience is devoid of the values that I believe are inherent in it, then what what is there? There's nothing there to believe in. And so then Everything is meaningless. Everything is, it's all just chaos. <coughs> but that's not true either because my values are real. My experiences are real. But they're not inherently real. They're not intrinsically real from their own side. My experiences are real because of karma. And because of emptiness, I can experience things as the, the way that I experience them and other people can experience them differently, and we're equally correct. 
This is the interrelationship between karma and emptiness. Karma, uh, karma is a Sanskrit word, uh, and it means lots of different things. Uh, at, in it, at its most basic, it means causality. And we already, we already believe in causality, right? We already believe in the functional, functionalist group. We already recognize that the pen is created by causes and conditions, right? It was manufactured, it was shipped, we buy it with cash and so on, you know? Cars work because we, you know, put gas in the tank and internal combustion and all that kind of stuff. And that explains how things are working, but the real question is why they're working. We, we have, we've determined that things are not working the way that they're working from their own side. They're working the way that they're working because of our habits of perception. Those habits of perception are, are karma. But karma goes beyond just material causality. Karma recognizes, karma recognizes that if cause if causality is working, which we know it is, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't go to work because money grows on trees or something, right? Like, we go to work to get the money to buy the gas to put in the car so that we can drive to the Dharma Center or whatever. But karma means that if we accept that causality is working on that level, we have to accept that causality is working on all levels. And that means that our thoughts and our feelings and our motivations and our intentions all have causal power. They're all part of causality. I react the way that I do because of my habits of perception. And the way that I react reinforces my habits, which is going to cause me to act that way again further down the line. The only way that that, the way that that works is because of emptiness. Are you following? Not really. <laughs> Emptiness is, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Emptiness is the space in which, for lack of a better word, I'm using a metaphor, the space in which phenomena are occurring. Karma is why things happen the way that they do. But it's not as simple as mechanistic causality like the, fun the functionalist group says. It's also our intentions. The things that we notice in the world, what we pay attention to, why we pay attention to some things and not other things, why we care about some things and we don't care about other things, is driven by karma. And so, if we want to change the world, we must 
change our perception of the world. The only way to change the world is to change our perception of the world. How do we change our perception of the world? We change our intentions. We change our actions. We change our behaviors. We notice in the moment. I can't in the moment make an irritating person cease to exist unless I recognize that the irritating person is not irritating because of their self-existently irritating person, but I'm perceiving them as irritating. That it's my perception of them as an irritating person that forces them to seem to me as being an irritating person. They're in my face right now, but what's actually happening is I am perceiving them as being in my face. And if I can cultivate a little bit of patience, I can change the situation. Maybe not in the moment, right? Like if the, like how do you get rid of an irritating person? Somebody's shouting at you. Do you, does, does, uh, does ignoring them make them go away? Does, or does, does ignoring them make them go away? Or does shouting back make them go away? Sometimes you, sometimes somebody's in your face and you get back in their face and they back down. Sometimes somebody's in your face, you get in their face and they get louder, you know? Sometimes somebody's in your face and you're patient with them and they calm down. Sometimes somebody's in your face and you're patient with them and they just never let up. We can't, oh, we can't change it in the moment just because we want to. But we can change it in the long term by adjusting our habits of perception. And so this is why, this is why you know, there are these various practices in Buddhism and yoga, like um, the six perfections, generosity, ethics, patience, having a positive attitude regardless of what's happening, developing equipoise, stillness, the ability to not get triggered and re, you know, react back, the ability to recognize, recognize that the irritatingness, like the penness, is an overlay. It's a perceptual overlay. So this is how we can begin to apply these concepts in our lives. We can't always change the situation in the moment. Actually, Buddhism says, according to Buddhism, it's impossible to change the situation in the moment. What you're experiencing is forced upon you by, this is like straight up karma, straight up Buddhism. What you're experiencing in the moment is forced upon you by karma. Your reaction is forced upon you by karma. Free will is an illusion. You're, uh, you're, not, you're not a pen, you're a flow through time and space. So, you, but you still have to try. You know, you still have to make an effort. You still have to set that intention that I'm gonna be patient for one second longer. And like flexing that muscle, doing that extra, you know, 
two or three patients' push-ups is making that slight diversion in the karmic stream. It's not going to necessarily make the problem go away in the present. It's not necessarily going to make the good things stay. This is like a fundamental, this is like fundamental law of karma. Things arise, they last for a while, and they fade away. This is like the basic, basic Buddhist tenet of uh, um, impermanence. impermanence, thank you. Change, I, was chained. I think of it as change, but yes, impermanence, impermanence. Things aren't gonna last, they, they, they just don't. It's not how it is, impermanence. That's true of good things, and that's true of unpleasant things. That's true of happiness generating things. That's true of unhappiness generating things. The interrelationship between karma and emptiness means what I'm experiencing now is a result of my habits. A law of karma is that if you want something, make sure that other people get it first. This is like the, this is the kind of trippy part about Buddhist philosophy that, uh, that we ha I think we have a, the hardest part, the hardest time wrapping our heads around, is that the, the way that the, what we put out into the universe, what we put out, what we, what we put out is what comes back to us. There's a time gap. This is this planting the seed thing, again, right? You plant a seed, you can't just be like, okay, I'm ready for the thing to be finished growing. It takes time. And really, that process is, is not under our control. So we have to invest what we want to see in reality. And that's what's going to create that coming back to us. There's a lot of sort of new age kind of interpretations of this, like the secret and the law of attraction and stuff like this. And the, like these things are basically saying like, if you want something enough, you'll get it. And that's true, except you have to want it for other people. You have to get, you have to make it so that other people are getting what you want if you're gonna get it yourself. This is what, um, what they call like, there's like white karma and dirty white karma. Good karma and dirty good karma. Um, unless you're a Buddha, you're basically incapable of planting good karma. You're basically incapable of creating good karma. Um, because we're always at least subtly, at least subtly selfishly motivated. Even if we understand the laws of karma, we're, we're subtly selfishly motivated. But the more altruistic we can be, the, the greater our altruism, the less our selfishness is, the more effective planting that good karma is going to be. Um, a Buddha is a being that has awakened. Buddha means to, uh, awakened. Um, it, it means, the word Buddha means something like a lamp that dispels darkness. So the word enlightenment actually is quite a good translation. But it, but it also means like to wake up, 
wake up to how reality is really working. So Buddhas are actually still subjected to the laws of cause and effect. They're still subjected to the laws of karma. But they understand how it's working so perfectly that they're always planting the they're always creating the causes that recreate the result of them being enlightened. So Buddhas are ultimately altruistic, are ultimately compassionate, because that's pragmatically the only way to stay in an enlightened state is to care, uh, care to have an infinite amount of care about an infinite amount of beings. And this is why wisdom is important. This is why wisdom is a, is a principal path. Because if you can get that, all it takes is a moment of getting that. And then all the pieces fall into alignment and, and spontaneously, Buddhas are able to recreate the causes for enlightenment moment to moment. In, in the first of these classes, we talk about the three bodies of a Buddha, right? And one of them is the Nirmana Kaya, which is the emanation body of a Buddha. That a Buddha is not, because they're existing with an understanding that time and space are, per, are per, perceptions, they, they're not limited to one body. They can spontaneously create infinite numbers of bodies. In fact, they can spontaneously create infinite numbers of worlds. You could even say that Buddhas manifest suffering beings so that they have beings to help, so that they can plant the good karma of staying in an enlightened state. If you can wrap your head around that. Yeah, I know, that's how I feel too. Thanks. Um, so, how do, so we need to learn how to apply these in our in our daily life. And quite simply, we just have to develop the habit, we just have to develop the skill to remember, wait a minute, this isn't intrinsic. This isn't inherent. What I'm experiencing now is not the way things are. It's the way I perceive things to be. And if I can adjust my perception in this moment just a little bit, it's going to influence the the way that I'm planting the seeds, which are going to ripen as different seeds, ripen as similar experiences. If I can, if I can be patient in, in, while being provoked, you don't get, I mean, I mean, let's be frank, you don't get any points for being patient when people are nice to you. You only get points for being patient when people are in your face. It's only patient if you're being, if, it's only patience if you're being provoked, right? It's no use being patient when you're not being provoked. But if you can hold out a little bit longer, then you're creating that little bit of momentum that further down the line, you'll, ha you'll be able to be patient a little bit longer and a little bit longer. You'll be able to be a little bit kinder. You'll be able to be a little bit more generous. And that's what's going to create that momentum of changing the trajectory. It's why we practice meditation, right? To help concentrate, to help develop our concentration, to help remind ourselves, remind ourselves things are not the way, things are not inherently the way that I perceive them to be. They are the way that I perceive them to be, but they're the way, but they are the way that I perceive them to be because I perceive them that way. And if I can change my perception, even a little bit, that's gonna change the flow.
that's going to change the trajectory just a little bit. Because this is how the universe is working. This is how reality exists. In Buddhism, it's called the three spheres. I don't know why they call them spheres. Maybe it's like spheres of influence or something. They're not, they're not spherical, like a shapeless sphere, but whatever, that's beside the point. The three spheres. The three spheres are the subject. That's me perceiving. The object, that's the thing out, out there that I'm perceiving. And the third sphere is the relationship between the two. And ignorance is thinking that the object is self-existent, that the subject is accurately perceiving reality, is accurately perceiving the thing that is self-existently the way that it is, and that the relationship between the two is I'm minding my own business and then oh, pop up in horror land, it's in my face, and I was just minding my own business, and all of a sudden this irritating person, I wish they were sick and stayed home today. But the reality is that the three spheres are coming into ex existence simultaneously. The subject, the object, and the relationship between the two are co-emergent. This is why they use the term interdependence or dependent origination, number two on the handout. Interdependence, the subject and the, the subject and the object and the relationship between the two are all interdependent upon one another. There's no like obnoxious boss who is at home right now who you're going to run into tomorrow when you go to the office. They, they, it, it is co-emergent with your experience of them. But we're going one step beyond perspectivism and saying this is the fundamental nature of the universe. The subject-object perceptual matrix is the fundamental nature of the universe. That's how the universe exists. Past, present, and future are all subjective. They're all perceptions. They're all perceptions of a projection. And we just are trying to habituate ourselves to this, realizing it's a constant flow of experience. And that, if, and that the, the subtle adjustments that we can make to the experience which we can get more skillful at as we practice meditation, develop concentration, right? One of the types of meditation is shamatha, which means single-pointed concentration. That means the ability to put your mind on an object and hold it there without wavering. And if we could develop that shamatha, which is an extraordinary feat, it's not just like something that you can like pick up after a few you know, meditation classes or yoga classes. It's a lifetime of, I mean, you want to develop shamatha, you have to treat meditation like your job. It's got to be your full-time job. You've got to be putting hours and hours into meditation, just so you know, if you want to develop shamatha. But if you can develop shamatha, if you can develop single-pointed concentration, then you can choose where to put the laser of your concentration. And then, instead of just getting rid of irritating people with patience, you can transform the world into an enlightened paradise. A Buddha is a being who has perfect concentration, and they simply project the universe that they want to see. But it's tricky, because each of us is in our own universe. Each of us is the nexus of our own universe. And somehow all of our universes are coexisting in some kind of matrix. Don't ask me. So somehow Buddhas can see us as suffering beings, 
they can see that we perceive ourselves as suffering beings. They don't see us as suffering beings. Buddha see us as our pure potential. They see us as just as much a Buddha as they themselves are. But they see that we perceive ourselves as poor little shriveled golem me who's like clutching desperately to what little happiness I can get and pushing away desperately what little suffering I can get, what I can get rid of, you know? Constantly being like, I like this food, but not that food, you know? They can see that, that they can see that we're feeling that way, but they can see that that's just our own stupid habit. So Buddhas manifest in myriad forms, infinite forms, in, and not just as beings, not just as other beings. They don't have to look like these awesome creatures in the paintings. Because Buddhas, they, by definition, they must be in our lives at all times. Our guru, our ultimate guru, is following us around through countless lifetimes, tapping us on the shoulder, saying, hey, 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 pay attention. And the reason we don't see them is because our habits of perception, we overlay suffering schmuck reality onto everything we perceive. It's safe to assume that Buddhas are hanging out around you all the time. But they're not stuck in a body. A Buddha could be the the rustle of the wind through the trees that turns your mind in a certain way, ever so slightly. And the more that we can, this is the big picture, right? The, the more that we can habituate ourselves to seeing the world this way, the more we will see the world this way. And we just have to develop that karmic momentum. We have to develop that trajectory. We have to develop that flow. And the more that we can do that, the more effectively we can do that, the more rapidly we can see our world transform. Because the world isn't the way that we perceive it to be. The only reason the world is the way that we perceive it to be is because of the way that we perceive it to be. And we can shift those perceptions. And so as an exercise, we can look for the ways that enlightened beings, or whatever metaphor you want to use, are there they're not self-existently there right we're projecting them we're projecting them and so if we can this is guru yoga right in a nutshell like this is why you practice guru yoga you just like choose that person is a buddha in my world and the reason i don't perceive them as a buddha is because i have a habit to not perceive them as a buddha and so i have to just see everything that they're doing as an attempt to teach me and the more effectively I can see the world that way, the more quickly my karmic evolution, my cosmic evolution will progress. That's enough.